Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your very sickly host, Gareth, who's going to try and get through this without dying. It's not dreaded lager lurgy, don't worry. Uh, and with me, as always, being very socially distanced from me to basically make sure I don't get them sick, uh, my co-host, Drew, say hi. Oh, hi. Oh, hi. And uh, Aaron, say hi. Hello there. Hello there. Yes. General Kenobi. <laughs> General I am that bad. I can't remember my, uh, my own favorite quote in Star Wars. Honestly, I can't. Re- oh, yeah. Cut all of that. It's rubbish. No, I don't know if I want to. General Kenobi. <laughs> right. Well, coming up this week, uh, if I don't, if I make it to the end of the episode, that'd be, that'd be good. Um, we've got a new dinosaur found in the UK. Always good to hear about. Uh, we've got pool frogs, and uh, we're then going to be looking at one of Australia's deadliest creatures, which I can speak from personal experience. You can apparently try and catch with a tin of dog food. And then we're going to be looking at some small furry myths. So uh, let's pop into the news. It's the news. Right, well, we're into the news, and hopefully I'm going to be able to get through this whole article, but I get the fun of bringing you more dinosaurs found in the UK. This one actually follows on from an article that we had either earlier this year or last year with those two new baryonychines that were found on the Isle of Wight. Well, this is another giant spinosaurid dinosaur found on the Isle of Wight. It's basically turning into a bit of a spinosaur paradise the Isle of Wight would have been an interesting place to be. Um, but this is purported to be Europe's largest ever predator, a dinosaur found on the Isle of Wight. This is on uh, BBC News, but it's also on uh, fizz.org and a couple of other science ones. But yeah, remains of the largest ever land-based predator have been discovered on the Isle of Wight. Paleontologists at the University of Southampton have identified the remains, uh, which measured uh, 32 feet or 10 metres long, that's pretty big. Um, the biggest estimate for a baryonyx is 10 meters. So this standard sort of size seems to be around seven and a half to eight meters. But yeah, the biggest estimate puts them at 10 meters. This appears to be 10 meters. And it's from about 125 million years ago. So that's during the Cretaceous period. So it's the same as the other uh, baryonychines that we've talked about before. So the bones uh, belonged to. Uh, well, another member of the Spinosaurid family, uh, says uh, PhD student Chris Baker, uh, who led the research and said it was a huge animal. I mean, yeah, fairly obvious. Um, well, I say fairly obvious. The actual remains of this creature uh, just include a piece of the pelvis, a tail vertebra, and um, one or two other small bones. So it's not exactly a whole skeleton, this. Uh, it's very, very small, but... It is different enough that they are able to work out that it's a Spinosaurid uh, of some sort. Uh, And it's been dubbed the White Rock Spinosaurid after the layer of rock that the remains were found in. So, yeah, there's there's about five or six different pieces from this animal. If you were were to have them in front of you, there's probably only one or two you'd be able to quite easily distinguish as being a piece of vertebra. So it it is one that you'd have to know what you're looking at. But uh, the Isle of Wight is obviously one of the best places for finding dinosaurs in the UK, and it seems to be the um, the place for finding new species at the moment as well. Um, so Mr. Baker said uh, that it was a huge animal, exceeding 10 metres in length and probably several tonnes in weight. And judging from some of the dimensions, uh, it appears to represent one of the largest predatory dinosaurs ever found in Europe, uh, maybe even the biggest yet known. So, yeah, it's a fairly f- interesting find. Hopefully there'll be more bits found of it. It would have lived at the beginning of a period of rising sea levels, and it would have stalked tidal lagoons and uh, mudflats in search of food. Uh, basically, being so large, it probably had the uh, the pick of what it wanted to eat, but without specific teeth and that, we can't really tell exactly, you know, if it was capable of doing one or a few other things. But as we found with uh, baryonyx, it appears to have eaten a bit of everything, 
So uh, there's probably a good chance if it's 10 meters long and it sees a small dinosaur that's a little bit injured, it's probably going to eat it. But the co-author uh, of the research, uh, Darren Nash, said that because it's only known from fragments at the moment, we haven't given it a formal scientific name. So it is literally just dubbed as the White Rock Spinosaurid, uh, which the hope that additional remains will turn up in time. The actual layer itself is uh, on one specific beach on the Isle of Wight, which seems to turn out quite a bit of uh, interesting material from that time period. And <laughs> this will be this will be interesting for, for you to Although I say more, Aaron, he's probably going to uh, to jump at this one. Jeremy Lockwood, can you... Uh, <laughs> Lockwood. <laughs> there you go. Not the same, obviously. One's fictional. Uh, but Jeremy Lockwood, another co-author of the study and a PhD student at the University of Portsmouth and the Natural History Museum, uh, said, I was searching for the remains of this dinosaur uh, with Nick and found a lump of pelvis with tunnels bored into it about the size of my index finger. We think the, uh, that was caused by bone-eating larvae of some type of scavenging beetle. And it's an interesting thought that this giant killer wound up becoming a meal for a host of insects. So it shows some real uh, paleopathology. So this thing died and was yeah, nibbled on by lots of different bugs in that area. But yeah, the, this dinosaur is basically another uh, in the long line of uh, dinosaurs that are being found on the Isle of Wight. And somewhere I really hope to go back to at some point and go fossil hunting because it is just it's a stunning place to work uh, to go and find bits and when you say when you say you hope to go back there I, yeah I, I, have you been banned no i just haven't okay. had the time all right it's, you know i haven't been do you know what i haven't been fossil hunting in almost well you know in over two years and it's really sad i need to get back out there i haven't, I haven't done it in ages hmm. uh, through no fault of my own or through various other means and well let's say covid didn't help as well but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's my new uh, my article, a new Spinosaurid, adding to the list uh, that are um, well, Britain is turning out to be the island of Spinosaurs. I think that's the uh, the best thing Probably. to say. For Probably, yeah. All you Spinosaur haters. I, mean, I don't hate Spinosaurus. Well, I mean, Spinosaurus. We don't like the J the Jurassic Park three Spinosaurus, but I like Spinosaurids. Yeah. Baryonyx is great. I'm yeah. very much in the same boat there. I like Spinosaurus. I particularly like it because every week we learn something new about mm. it, which makes it very interesting. Yeah, It's, it's, like, just it's like an iPhone, isn't it? Jurassic <laughs> Park 3 was yeah. just so bad a representation uh, and such a bad film too. Well, actually, at the time, that was actually... I know, I know. It was... But... <laughs> but that does at the time Jurassic Park three was a bad movie, and still today it's a bad movie. So it's oh. spoiled it. <laughs> oh well, there we go. Right, well, <laughs> let's move on from my very croaky uh, dinosaur uh, <laughs> to Drew's, which is about croaky animals. Oh my god, it's reason. about croaky animals. Whoa, in whoa, <laughs> um, yeah. So Ooh. I've <laughs> I've a very short article. Uh, it is good news, but I. Feel they really skimmed over the details and it could have been a, a bit longer um, as there is a lot more to tell people about this. So uh, it's from The Guardian and it's about northern pool frogs and their return to the UK. So the header says, loud croaking striped frogs, which have been extinct in Britain, are thriving after being reintroduced. So the northern pool frog is one of the rarest amphibians of the world, the article then says. Um, this is somewhat deceptive because the pool frog in itself is least concern and found across most of Central and Northern Europe. The populations of pool frogs found in very restrictive areas of Scandinavia and Estonia have been dubbed um, Northern pool frogs, and they are very rare. So I looked into this and I could find no mention of them being a separate subspecies of pool frog, but rather just sort of a separate population. Um, not that that makes them any less noteworthy, uh, but it might make people think all uh, pool frogs are rare. So the article then goes on to say that the importance of the species to Britain was only realised in 1995 after it already became extinct in the country. Uh, and it's now thriving again, thanks to a reintroduction programme. So, yes, the northern pool frog's native status in the UK has been in debate since the early 1800s, as similar species were introduced here from Europe, uh, like the marsh frog and the edible frog, and also non-northern pool frogs. All of these frogs are now in the same genus by the way they used to be i believe they all used to be within rana which is the 
uh, genus the common frog belongs to. Uh, but the new genus is uh, Pelophylax, which means mud sentinel, which is, I like that. I like the name. That's, That's good, cool. isn't it? And they're commonly grouped together uh, within the name green frogs as well. So <laughs> just because they're... Uh, some, yeah, generic. yeah, so, so they, they classed frogs as basically brown frogs and green frogs and the, these are these are your green frogs i think our common frog is in the brown frog category even though sometimes they could be a bit green but anyway it's not easy being green it isn't as um famously our great leader once said so the <laughs> accepted position was that pool frogs were not native however a closer examination of early uk literature sources and the discovery of these uh, rare populations in sweden and norway led to some herpetologists to wonder whether some of our pool frogs were native after all. Research in the 1990s found that pool frogs have, a, have regional accents to their calls, and further studies, including subfossil evidence around 1,000 years ago, uh, before present, uh, which predated other introduced populations of pool frogs, found that our pool frogs have a shared ancestry with those in Scandinavia, and they were native after all. But not only that, our pool frogs are part of a distinct northern northern group. So even more reason to reintroduce them. Um, all of that information, by the way, was from ARG, the Amphibian and Reptile Group, um, or ARC, sometimes the Amphibian and Reptile Conservation, and Frog Life. So none of that was in the article. Um, so yeah, you see what I mean, that they could have expanded upon this really. It was very short. Now, come on, you can't expect them to put news or facts in a news article. No, I expect better from The Guardian sometimes, to be honest, but, you know, I suppose they let all of them let us down. So anyway, um, a few years back, I mean, we're talking 2005, I think, around that sort of year, pool frogs were brought from Sweden to re-establish a colony in Norfolk, which is where they were most populous before we drained the fens. Um, for those of you who don't know, Western Norfolk, as lovely as it is, should basically be a massive swamp. Um, if you search for a, a, a proper map of England in the early Middle Ages, because uh, most of the maps you'll find it has the same coastlines today, it didn't. Uh, 500 um, to 1000 CE or before that, the coastline is quite different to what it is now. And that's where the northern pool frog was, um, was commonly found. Anyway, I digress again. So these North, uh, Norfolkian stock have bred so successfully that they are now being used to create other breeding populations. Uh, the great success came last year when the ARG, uh, so that's Amphibian Reptile Group, uh, Trust raised tadpoles in special tanks and released 542 of them into ponds at Thompson Common in Norfolk. The article then finishes by saying, unlike the common frog, Rana temporia, which has already laid its spawn, the pool frog waits until the water warms up in May and June. The males make a lot of noise with special pouches on either side of their throat, and the spawn is laid in smaller clumps than the common frog. After breeding, the frogs, which have distinctive stripe down their backs, resume basking in the summer sun. And that's basically it. So it's a short frogo article that I've expanded on, because uh, it would have been even shorter than that, um, but about successful reintroductions of pool frogs. And Apologies, but I did read that. I did uh, just notice this as I was um, as I was writing this one up actually today that there was actually nothing recent in the, in this article about its contents. It mentioned, you know, the reintroduction back in two thousand and five, and they had a successful breeding season last year. And actually, I realised that this article was from April, so whoopsies. But <laughs> that was of this year. <laughs> uh, but anyway, look. It's it's good news. It's it's a, it's been a slow news week, I think, to be honest. Apart from that dinosaur one, and I imagine it went under a lot of people's radar, including mine. I didn't notice one this one back in April. So let's just enjoy some good frog news when it happens, and especially well organised and re uh, research reintroductions too. So there we go. Hmm. I tell you what, I've just looked at a map of of the Norfolk Fens, pre draining. Yep. Yes, and it's it's a massive area. Yep. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that was that was all that was drained. all swamp basically. All yeah. like um, I think tight, very very tidal. So sometimes it was underwater, sometimes it was um, sometimes it wasn't. But yeah, we drained it all. I mean, so you could almost pat Norfolk off there. Yeah, uh, if that was you know. So which... you can imagine it as basically when, at the point when when the the Danes and the Norse were coming over and raiding Norfolk looked a lot different to what it what it did now it, it, it was um very swampy the, the coat yeah the, the coastline was completely different so it's not that long ago really mm. well maybe we should flood 
a good chunk of Norfolk. Well, <laughs> <laughs> there we'll might be some people who get we'll a bit we'll annoyed. We'll petition up and uh, see, you know see what? How, Let's uh, do that. how on board everyone is on that. We've you lost the uh, lost the only listener we had in Norfolk now. <laughs> Let's make Norfolk wet again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Lincolnshire as well, I think. I think that used to be... Cool, we're flooding Schwab. Lincolnshire Sorry, as well. Sorry, Lincolnshire. Your big cathedral's going underwater. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, you know, give it 20 years, global warming, it'll all be underwater anyway. But, um, yeah. Yeah. And the frogs will go. be happy. The frogs will be happy, which is good. <laughs> right well let's move on from our news article to our creature feature aaron you're going to take us down under it's the creature feature right well yeah we're, we're now down under not really but we can only help i suppose uh aaron what are we looking at we're going to be looking at a blue ringed octopus now, there's, there's, there's actually reason to think there may be as many as 10 different species of blue-ringed octopus, but we currently recognize only four, which are the greater blue-ringed octopus, the southern blue-ringed octopus, the blue-lined octopus, and the fourth is only known by its scientific name, which is uh, about to be butchered, and that is Hapalocleina neostrazi, I think. I, I remember us doing Hapalocleina on the quiz. Ah, yes, it's and true. none of us knew what it was. None of us knew what it was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is embarrassing because I planned that this one yeah. since, like, yeah. last year. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or yeah. planned that I wanted to do it since last year. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, with uh, this kind of animal, it, it it's not like... There seems to be quite a lot of similarities be- between the species that are recognised. So you could take stuff from this and translate it to all species, but I'm mainly looking at the greater blue-ringed octopus because it's, um, in my completely unbiased opinion... It's the greatest one. It's kind of the nicest one. It's the greatest one, yeah. It's the greatest It's one. the nicest colour one. Anyway, the greater blue-ringed octopus is known for the 50 to 60 bright blue rings that adorn their body and appendages. Uh, surprising how many of the rings there are considering their size, but we'll get on to that in a minute. The iridescent nature of the blue-green coloured rings, which are particularly striking in the greater blue-ringed octopus, are due to what's called iridophores, which is kind of along the same lines that we were talking about with pigments before, because these are multi-layered light-reflecting pigment uh, containing cells, and um, which allow for that, that striking colour. And um, then you kind of have arranged around them dark pigment chromatophores, which we've spoken a little bit about as well, which basically act to deepen the contrast of the display. Now, this display that the species exhibits is a form of aposematism, which is basically a form of natural colour defence that warns potential predators of the dangers that a species like this may pose. However, unlike most aposematic species, the blue-ringed octopus doesn't permanently display its vivid deterrent. Instead, using neuro control of their muscles, they can flash their wonderfully co- contrasting colours when under threat within a third of a second, a behaviour that would make the animal even less tempting a mouthful. And a mouthful would be quite accurate, for these little critters often measure between 12 and 20 centimetres full grown. So this is a tiny, tiny animal, considering there are 50 to 60 of these blue rings on them. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily know how small they are from the photos you see you're more likely if you have a look at some of the videos of idiots on tiktok and youtube handing them i was uh, hoping you were going to bring up that (laughs) about to get about to get a very bad day if if they're unlucky that's how you can kind of see how big they are because most of them most of these videos show these octopuses smaller than people's hands so these guys you can basically find them inhabiting the coral reefs of the Pacific and Indian Oceans. Um, as Gareth alluded to, Australia is a popular place to, to spot them or to harass them if you're an idiot. Those. <laughs> they spend most of their day wedged into crevices in rock formations and the like. And they and obviously they, just like other octopus, they can perfectly camouflage themselves against these surroundings thanks to that, that fascinating ability to mimic not just the colour, but the shape and the texture of their environment. Um, and if you haven't seen an octopus do this, go on to YouTube and, and have a look because it's f- fantastic. They can make their skin look like all manner of uh, of rocky textures or um, leafy um, 
weeds and such. Anyway, this most photogenic of species appears at night, predating on crustaceans primarily and the occasional kind of injured or not particularly healthy fish. Uh, they are very active hunters, though, pouncing on their prey with all limbs outstretched and ensnare their quarry pulling it closer to the digestive oblivion that is their beak. And that's where the venom is administered almost unnoticeably, which is important if you're an idiot pestering these animals with your hands, you might not notice that you get bitten. And this is administered, of course, by the posterior salivary gland. Their near indescribable beauty is matched only by the danger that they pose. Uh, once threatened, the subject will attempt to escape. Uh, they are actually, dare I say it, quite placid. If they're unsuccessful in, in this escape attempt, the apposematic display begins and a defense position is adopted. Should harassment continue, the culprit will face the full wrath of this fully armed and operational envenomation station. <laughs> Venom is a ridiculously powerful neurotoxin produced by a symbiotic bacteria that lives in them, not midichlorians. <sighs> Uh, so I'll break down what it contains. Firstly, the main ingredient on the menu is tetrodotoxin. This is a sodium channel blocker reportedly a thousand times more toxic than cyanide and can act as a local anesthetic and prevents the nervous system from carrying messages uh, and muscles from reacting accordingly. That's why you might not feel the bite when it happens. Next on the ingredients, this is histamine, uh, which you probably aware of from antihistamine which is a cream and such that you can apply to to stins and bites and stuff anyway histamine is a nitrogenous compound that affects the heart rate and the dilation of blood vessels then you've got tryptamine a hallucinogenic and psychedelic indolamine causing distorted perception of reality so you might feel a little bit uh weird um and you might not appreciate that you are currently underwater drowning then there's octopamine, which is actually named for octopuses. Shocking, Matt. Shocking. <laughs> this one isn't fully understood in us mammals, but it, it's related to fight or flight action in invertebrates. A good mammalian analogue for this would be norepinephrine, which does the same job in us, basically. Then you've got taurine, which, of course, that's quite a familiar one to most people. That uh, that calms the nervous system and lowers the blood pressure. Acetylcholine, which in increased amounts causes cramps, blurred vision, and paralysis, which is related to the end result of uh, of a blue ring octopus bite. And finally, dopamine, which is another familiar one. Uh, as you probably are aware, it provides a sense of pleasure. Now the venom. Be happy whilst you're dying, then. By all accounts, it completely confuses and throws off your your appreciation of your surroundings and your situation, whilst also paralysing you. In fact, the venom can result in nausea, respiratory arrest, heart failure, and varying degrees of paralysis and blindness. If left untreated, and by the way, there's no anti-venom for, for these squirmy sods, Death can result in mere minutes. This is usually down to suffocation as the diaphragm becomes paralyzed in most cases. You are conscious and alert as this happens to you. You are alive when they You are alive. References in today. Yeah. To make this nightmare worse, this most photogenic of species punches far above its weight carrying enough venom to end 26 people's subscriptions to life. <laughs> uh, Treatment it is expensive, though. It is expensive subscription. <laughs> yeah. Treatment essentially involves pressure at the injection site and assisted respiration as the paralysis uh, starts to take its grip over your lungs. If this is achieved before hypertension and other unattractive effects of being envenomated, then the life can be saved as the effects of the venom will run their course over a 24-hour period or a little bit thereabouts, basically. It's integral that this treatment is maintained until emergency medical services arrive, at which point the casualty can be taken to hospital and their survival chances are greatly increased. Um, now, the animals themselves are actually un unaffected by the main component, that, um, that tetradotoxin I mentioned before. In fact, pretty much every organ and gland tests positive for the presence 
of of this uh, of this toxin and the mummy octopus will actually inject it into her eggs as they incubate to kickstart her baby's venom production speaking of babies how do they make them well in blue ring octopus society the males approach the females using their hectocotylus uh, to get their attention now this is oh, an okay. arm that is modified for the storage and delivery of spermatozoa uh he then grabs her blocking her vision and it, yeah. yes basically and <laughs> in some in some species like this one uh they just repeatedly insert the hectocotylus into her mantle to deliver the package however in others they actually tear this arm off and give it to the females <laughs> Yeah, do something with this. Do, do with it as you wish. This is yours now. This is a naturalist. Uh, so this like will porn porn podcast, <laughs> isn't it? Really. <laughs> <laughs> this basically will continue until the female forcibly removes him. She'll then go and lay a clutch of up to fifty eggs, and these would be the uh, the only eggs she'll ever have. Um, she'll incubate these beneath her body until they hatch, at which point she dies. Her progeny will reach maturity within a year and they have a lifespan of up to three years, depending on nutrition as well as the temperature and light intensity of their habitat. Now, despite threats from habitat loss and fragmentation, pestering by idiot humans with TikTok and YouTube and Instagram, overfishing and bioprospecting, the Blue Ring octopus is currently listed as data deficient by the IUCN Red List. That being said, they are an important species to protect due to their position as predators and pest control as uh, they actually munch down on a tonne of Asian date mussels in some cases. They're also very much a sign of a healthy environment. And additionally, for us humans, their venom may actually be of uh, medicinal interest due to that, uh, that toxin, I can't pronounce, tetrodotoxin, because of it being the main ingredient. Um, so yeah, that is Blue Ring Octopus in a nutshell. Mm. Would you like to know how you get a Blue Ring Octopus in a can of dog food? Go on. It's one of those things you're saying um, about them living in different habitats and that. You can always remember there's a, um, you know, a lot of those sort of modern estates that the basic, the analog that I can think of that most people might be familiar with is places like Florida, where they um, build waterfront houses, usually <clears throat> quite expensive ones. And in the process, they build sort of artificial rivers in areas where, well, let's face it, they would have been mangrove uh, areas yeah, yeah. in those particular parts they were quite close to other mangrove areas as well. Around Adelaide, there was quite a few of them like that, some of the sort of more rich places. Some of these breakwaters and that were really good places to go fishing because you get all the fish coming in. You know, it's it's a nice sort of shallow area, good for that, for them to... Well, uh, they, they create like um, almost like artificial yeah, habitats. Like Certainly there's a lot of nutrients in the area then. Yeah. So much so that you'd get the dolphins coming in there all the time um, to, to eat the fish. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of people would do just for the fun of it, I, I never fully got why anyone would want to catch them, um, is you get a tin of dog food, you get rid of most of it. So there's just a few little bits in it. Yeah. Uh, but you don't open the tin completely. You open it sort of three quarters or, you know, just a quarter of the way open, get as much of it out of it as you can. Using the ring pool then, attach some string, throw it in the water. And uh, you'd end up with a, you should usually end up with a blue ring octopus going in there to uh, find food, of which you can then look at said blue ring octopus and be one of those idiots and poke it. But yeah, I, I know that a few of my friends had done that at one point or another um, in, in the past. Is but, it a rite of passage down under like poke a blue ring octopus? <laughs> if it is, I never did, but I did manage to find one in a, a crab net once. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. But it, it okay. then just sort of flopped back in the water pretty quickly. Can I can I just say that I, of all the videos that I looked at of idiots poking blue ring octopuses, only two of them uh, had Australian accents. Hmm. Most I mean, of them were most, tourists. Yeah, and most uh, people are aware how dangerous they are. It's sort of drilled I'm, into you at a young age. Don't I'm go not, picking up the wildlife. I'm not shocked to say that many of them were British accents. <laughs> it's always the same whenever you watch that like bondi rescue isn't it you know someone will go swimming after they've been drinking all night mm. and they didn't realize that you could get heat stroke and die out at sea or something or they don't know how to swim they, they didn't realize that beach it'd be fine there's a 
there's a croc in a billabong. <laughs> this is the problem when you when you live in a country that has systematically wiped out all of its predators and can't tolerate even small predators. You end up with a nation of people who don't understand or appreciate how to behave around dangerous, dangerous animals. animals. Yeah. This is why yeah. you have people yeah. getting up close to seals or flying drones around the faces of walruses. Definitely. And all that kind of thing. We had on our bookcase uh, in, in our house, we had at least two books. Um, I think my I think my mum was a bit more sort of cautious than the rest of venomous creatures that uh, live in Australia so that if anything got in the house, she was able to identify it. Oh, yeah. Um, keep in mind that in the 10 years that I lived there, uh, I think I saw three snakes in the entire time I was there and I went looking for them. The most dangerous or the most venomous thing that we ever saw in our garden was the big uh, 20 centimeter long scolopendra centipedes, which oh yeah, they're nasty. <laughs> they are nasty creatures. I knew someone in, in Malaysia who got bit by a centipede out there, and that was uh, that was pretty pretty nasty out there. Yeah, it's not that, nice. Yeah. But yeah, for blue ring octopuses, most people, if you're living in Australia, you know what one is. You don't go messing with them because it's it's not worth dying over. I to be honest, I've never understood the fascination with picking up things like octopuses out of a rock pool out of the sea like like just to like, i get it if people are you know taking it for food if they're fishing for these things but why would you take an octopus out out the water that that it just that doesn't seem it's the same particularly reason logical it's the same just reason enjoy, enjoy photos it. with baby animals isn't it you know yay look at me yes but it's it's like another level of i'm gonna take it out of the environment which it needs to be in to have my little jolly with it. I don't know. It's never made sense to me, especially things like octopus. Don't know. Don't know. Mm. Right. Well, oh dear, as my voice disappears, let's move into our next segment, shall we? (laughs) It will be done, my lord. You sounded more and more like Rolf every minute. Do you know what time it is? It's time for some myth-busting. It's time to nullify some nature nonsense. Right, so we're into this week's uh, myth busting. Uh, that would be word of the week here. Sorry, <laughs> that was really badly timed. <laughs> so we're into this week's myth busting, um, and whilst my voice is still with us, so we're going to cover some small mammal myths, three that uh, that do pop up quite often, and one that has a bit of a connection to hopefully a story that I'll be bringing as an actual news article at some point if I can. Uh, find out a bit more as, as to how they've done, but I'll explain more about that at the end. So, uh, Aaron, do you want to take us out with uh, our first myth? Yeah, so the first myth is porcupines can shoot their quills. So can porcupines shoot their quills? Yes, obviously. Oh. Why are they... Of course. I've seen cartoons. They're filled with gunpowder. No, powder. myth busted. <laughs> End of story. End of story. End right, of story. I'll, I'll, no. carry, I'll go with mine then, shall I? <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to expand just a little bit, uh, the myth probably stems from the fact that predators are being observed with quills attached to their faces and paws. This is because the quills can detach uh, when the sharp tip penetrates the harasser's skin. At this point, there's a barb, which is created by basically overlapping scales on the quill shaft, and that gets caught inside the skin, uh, denying the quill an easy kind of way back out of uh, of the insertion point so as the porcupine retreats or uh, draws its tail back the quill kind of pops out the uh out of his body and stays in the uh in the predator's body uh this also makes it difficult for the uh harasser themselves to remove the quills they can stay in for quite some time and it, it often causes causes a lot more irritation once it's once it's out Often the porcupines are attacked on the ground, partly because they're a terrestrial kind of group, but there are a few arboreal species and they're more likely to encounter predators when on the floor anyway. So um, usually this will happen when predators or pet dogs go looking in bushes or in other brush uh, and they receive a swipe from the tail for their curiosity. Uh, That's pretty much it. Basically, people have seen their dogs or some predator species walking around with quills stuck in them. And a porcupine walk in the other direction, 
and they've gone, oh, it's, it's shot them. Interestingly enough, I wanted to see if any human activity had kind of further inspired this myth. Uh, and whilst I can find evidence of people um, using them as clothing, particularly ceremonial headdresses uh, for First Nation peoples in America, uh, I couldn't actually find anything regarding them being used in weaponry. My first thought was like blowpipes and that kind of thing, but doesn't seem to be anything that I could find on that. Um, however, I'd be interested to find if anyone themselves were had had heard anything about it. But yeah, that is that myth busted. I know I haven't heard anything about weaponry. I have, yeah, uh, I think they use them as ceremonial dress as well in Africa as well, don't they? With the, um, Just with the don't get them the wrong way around. Sorry? Don't get them the wrong way around when you put it on. No, no, no. no. It's going to hurt no, otherwise. No. I remember because all, I... all, all three of us have worked with African crested porcupines, certainly, if, uh, if they weren't cape. I remember a vet telling us on a procedure that needs to be done on the porcupine, their skin actually is very, it's very easy to pierce porcupine skin. I think they said you could almost pierce it with your fingers if you if you pressed hard enough. I can't yeah, remember what the, what, the actual, what the actual yeah. procedure was, but yeah, so porcupine skin is really, well, that's why they need the quills really, I suppose. Or rather a side effect of having the quills is that they can be easily pierced themselves, but yeah, it means the and quills certainly... come out easily. Yeah, and they stick in quite well. I've seen yeah. what we've all seen them when they've got stuck into uh, to wood. Yes, and uh, it takes more than a little bit of effort to get them back out. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So um, imagine just... that as a lion or a leopard into your face. Well, they kill gonna... they they kill yeah. lions and leopards, don't they? Because of the bacteria on the on the quills. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Well, let's just move to on. Um, if I could just quickly expand on what I was saying, so. <clears throat> about about the head headdresses just to give them proper respect i suppose the the headdress is traditional male headdress typically found in in tribes uh, that inhabit what would now be like new england the great lakes and missouri river regions and they're they're called roaches porcupine roaches is is the proper name by the looks of it and they're often worn by dancers at powwows basically as regalia it's made of their guard hair and and some of the quills but yeah mm. well there it is mm. there it is well, well let's move on from our first myth about a rodent to a myth that's not about a rodent although that will become apparent yeah Drew. so to start off this myth i'm gonna give everyone a list of animals for you to figure the odd one out so if the Two of you could give our listeners just a few seconds to answer themselves, and I'll, I'll obviously ask you to uh, to answer it as well. So yeah. here comes here comes the list: mouse, rat, shrew, gerbil, hamster, lemming, squirrel, chinchilla, guinea pig, beaver, porcupine, capybara, prairie dog. So for everyone listening, which one is the odd one out? There we go. There's our elevator music. <laughs> So which one is the open out, you guys? Well, it's uh, it's gonna have to be the shrew. Uh, actually, no, it's not. It's the hamster because all the others are great what? and hamsters are rubbish. But yes, <laughs> no, you are you are right. Uh, it is it is the shrew. Um, and why is it the shrew? Well, because all of the others are rodents. Uh, so that's right, beloved listeners. Shrews are not rodents. Wow. Uh, they may look like long-nosed mice, but shrews are actually another thing entirely. They aren't even in the same order as rodents, which means taxonomically a cat is closer to a dog than a shrew is to a mouse. So what the bloody hell is a shrew? You're probably screaming out in an exasperation. So shrews are uh, instead in the family... Sauricidae. I don't know if that's a soft C or a hard C, so it could be Sauricidae, I'm not sure. And there are more than 385 species of shrew. So they're relatively closely related to moles, hedgehogs, uh, selenodons, and desmonds. If you don't know what the last two are, that's fine. Oh, <laughs> um, they, they are quite obscure, uh, but I'm sure we'll go into them uh, one day or, you know, just Google them. Or watch that Noah's Island. Yes, that's exactly why I know what Desmond is, because of Noah's yes, Island. Yes, be a child in the 90s. 
um, uh, yeah, so altogether, these small mammals belong in the order Ulip, Ulipotyphla, which means truly fat and blind, uh, which is proof that scientists are mean. So wow. this tax I think that describes me, actually. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I don't think so, Gareth. Don't. <laughs> You know, let's not let's not put ourselves down on uh, live on uh, not live uh, recorded on this podcast. Uh, anyway, so this taxa used to be called insectivora, and it used to be what we call a dump tax or a wastebasket taxa, which is basically where you fly tip any animal you couldn't genetically identify. So this shrew, it's a small mammal, but it's not a rodent. They eat its insects just chuck it into insectivora basically is what they did uh, but insectivora has since been cast back into the fiery chasm from whence it came shrews now uh, in their nice truly fat and blind family aren't all that fat uh, in fact they are constantly active and their heart beats 800 to a thousand times per second but they are a, a bit blind blinded by power i think uh, because these little jittery with caffeine beasties are one of the most widespread and diverse groups of mammals in the world uh, which is something they share with rodents as well as bats. Uh, they inhabit almost every terrestrial environment. The only land masses without native shrews are Shrew Guinea, Australia, and Shrew Zealand. <laughs> There's your proof that shrews yeah, are everywhere. Uh, Jess really hated that joke, by the way. Tartica? Shrew Tartica. Oh. oh. Well, no, I guess there wouldn't not be a country, any... I know. It's not a country, no. Anyway. The smallest terrestrial mammal in the world <laughs> is also a shrew, uh, the Etruscan shrew, which weighs about 1.8 grams. Um, so what makes these rodent-like mammals not actual rodents? Uh, the, probably the best thing that distinguishes them um, is that rodents are famous for having constantly growing incisors, whereas shrews do not. They have hollow, sharp little bitey teeth for chomping down, uh, chomping down on insects. And why are they hollow, you might ask? Well, many shrews are actually venomous. Uh, some have enough venom to kill 200 mice. So not quite, maybe not quite as potent as our blue ring octopus, but certainly pretty potent to little things. Yeah, no one ever warns you about the shrews. No. So most shrews eat their own <laughs> weight in food uh, every day. If a shrew doesn't eat within a few hours, it just dies. Uh, so they go around biting invertebrates, paralyzing them with venom, and then they cash them for whenever the hunt is not so lucrative. Uh, many shrews can also use echolocation. Again, I don't think any rodents can, but this is more to work out their environment uh, than actually working out where prey is. But there we go. Shrews are not rodents. Uh, they're instead something completely different and are brimming with amazing and crazy adaptations. Mm, very cool. Very yeah. shrewd. <laughs> very, very shrewd. Right, well, we'll move on to our third myth. This one is uh, a rodent, so we're back on rodents again. And it's one that if you live in a city, um, you've probably heard in one form or another. And it is that you are, well, specifically for this version of the myth, I'm sure it's exactly the same in large cities all over the rest of the world. But you are never more than six feet away from a rat in London. And I'm not just talking about being in Downing Street. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, the jokes are coming thick and fast. Political, yeah. Yeah. Right there, razor sharp. Anyway, um, so yeah, it's it's one of those myths that we tend to just take as gospel. Uh, most people just tend to think, yeah, that's fair enough. Rats are pretty much everywhere. You know, you see them in cities, you see them in sewers, all those sort of things. You assume that they're just there. But because they're out of view, people assume that they are there all the time. But how true is this? Well, there's been a, a bit of sort of research, roughly, into how many rats there are uh, in an area. Um, and there's thought to be roughly 1.6 million rats in our sewage systems and over 200,000 uh, lingering near commercial areas uh, in, you know, sort of streetwise urban populations of rats. Uh, but between three to 3.5 million in total across the UK. So we have covered rats previously on, on a creature feature. But uh, when it comes to making the definitive claim that uh, they are, you know, in certain areas, e uh, experts are uh, cautious uh, of basically giving that exact thing. In fact, one of them put uh, one of them put the estimate at being 164 feet away from a rat. So that's a decent distance away from a rat. Obviously, the closer you are to sort of run down urban areas, 
you are going to obviously encounter more of them. So it all comes down to basically, uh, you know, where you're living, in the area you're living, you're more likely to see them. Rats are quite uh, populous um, throughout the UK. And in fact, there's been very little, there's been very little study into the UK's rat population. DEFRA have no records on it. Um, there was a 2018 report by Natural England uh, about the population of brown rats, which they estimated somewhere around 7 million. So that's the whole of England. So that's not just London. Although you speak to most people from outside the UK, they are just going to picture the rest of England to look like London. But in fact, is quite different. Obviously, where we are out in the countryside, there are rats and you tend to find them in and around hedgerows, uh, farmers' fields, so the, the borders of those fields where they will be looking for food. They like the same things we like. They like a nice, dry place to live. They like easy food to come across. So, you know, they're not going to live in horrible areas. They will live in sewers, but they tend to find the nice, dry parts. Sewers also are, are quite warm as well. So it's a perfect environment for them to, uh, to be able to find places to live. Anyway... Back to the idea of how many you would find living in London, say. There is actually a calculation that I was able to come across that somebody had worked out. Um, so London is about 1,583 square kilometres in area. That's roughly 1,583,000 1, metres squared. And there are about 10.7 square feet in a square metre. I love how this calculation just mixes up feet and uh, meters so it makes yeah. it 10 times <laughs> more complicated yeah <laughs> so 10.7 square feet uh in a square meter um so if we then times our figure by 10.7 we get that london is made up of roughly 16,938 100 square feet so <laughs> rats tend to uh live in areas like say that humans do because we you know tend to have a lot of food and places for them live uh, to live. So if we take that, London has roughly 9 million uh, out of the 66.65 million people living in the UK. That's roughly one seventh of the UK's population. So if we say that out of the 7 million rats in the UK, uh, that there are about a million living in London. So roughly equivalent to the sort of humans. If we then divide the square feet area for London, we then get one every 0.05 square feet. The calculation would then suggest that you're more than 100 feet away from a rat on average in London, which is probably accurate to some, to some extent. But like I say, it entirely depends on where you are. If you go down into a sewer, there's probably going to be a rat closer to you. If you go to the top of the shard in London, there's probably not going to be a rat near you. <laughs> if you go out in the middle of the countryside, you're probably not going to be that close to a rat. So um, it is very much a myth that just seems to have been perpetuated uh, as sort of, well, generic fact, because people are lazy at trying to work things out. Although it would appear that the, uh, the people who have tried to work it out have put it in ridiculous ways of trying to work it out. So there we go. There is rats for you in a, uh, in a nutshell. So yeah. myth busted. Myth busted. Um, I have got a uh, quick statistic about shrews in the UK uh, as Ooh. well. There's an estimated, uh, so this is in the UK specifically, uh, there's an estimated 50 shrews per hectare in woodland areas. So there's a lot of shrews out there. Yeah. Does that account for all three species or just one? It doesn't, this website that I was looking on does not specify. Um, so mm. I would assume it's, all of them but i mean common trees are well pretty common, common. yeah <laughs> yeah the the, well, the the good thing about shrews and hopefully i'll be able to follow this up as a actual somewhat bit of news connected to all of this uh is i ended up being handed three baby shrews the other day mm. by some people who'd managed to destroy the nest um and it's yet again one of those things that i want to get this message out to people if you come across a nest of baby birds baby mammals anything don't pick them up and hand them to someone. Yeah. Leave them where they are because those animals then don't have anywhere near as much of a chance as they did uh, if they were left where they are. Keep an eye on them. Absolutely fine. Make sure that everything's fine. And if literally no other option is available, then seek help. 
But by taking yeah. them out of the wild, it limits their chances massively. Now, luckily, I was able to take these three baby shrews to a local wildlife rescue center, um, which I'm hoping I'll be able to get an update on at some point. And hopefully they'll all be alive and be able to go back into the wild. Yeah. But yeah. Please, please don't pick up baby birds, baby mammals, anything. Don't pick Someone them up. Someone else's because... baby. Don't do it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you wouldn't do it with a baby human. Don't pick up a baby bird. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my random bit to add on to our myths there. But, uh, right, well, let's go from our myths and head into our emails. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, so we're into our emails for this week, uh, and we're going to start off with one. Uh, actually, we've got a book recommendation first off. Aaron, would you like to take us through this one? Uh, yeah, so we got an email through from uh, from one of our listeners, Jennifer. Thank you very much. And she gives us a bit of a reading recommendation, and that is for a book by Helen Pilcher. Uh, the book's called Bring Back the King, The New Science of De-Extinction. And... Um, I think none of us have read that one, have we? Nope. No. No. Right, so none of us have read it, but I've read the overview um, just to see what it's like, and it does sound really interesting. It, it Basically, uh, the author kind of delves into the um, kind of state-of-the-art technology and methods and where it's all going in terms of cloning for... The resurrection of species and individuals. So she talks about bringing back. The reason why it's called Bring Back the King is because she's talking about. She tries to balance talking about the tech, like the technical side of it, with a bit of humor. She talks about bringing back the Tyrannosaurus Rex, the king of the dinosaurs, and she talks about bringing back Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll. Uh, if we combine the two, <laughs> Elvis Rex. Yeah, it sounds very good. Um, it talks about, it even mentions Neanderthals. It mentions about how we may see a day where it's quite common to bring back or or rather to clone because you wouldn't be bringing back the individual, uh, but to clone like a particularly beloved pet that had passed away. And it does, it's got good reviews. It's four and a half stars on the uh, on the site that I'm looking at now, but it it sounds really interesting. So I think we probably between the three of us should give it a look at some point. Uh-huh. Um, but thank you for the reading recommendation. We don't get many recommendations when it comes to books and and also other media uh, forms as well. So thank you for that, and hopefully more people might chime in and and shout some more stuff out to us for us to look into. Hmm. Yeah. It'd be it'd be good to have a, a reading list. We've already given our recommendations of books, so um, yeah, it's nice to have some given to us. On the subject of the extinction, we've kind of spoken about it with the thylacine and the mammoth, uh, but one thing we didn't really mention is that that I thought it was relevant to mention now is the danger of the extinction. If we bring back the thylacine, it proves that extinction is not forever, and I yeah. think that's a very dangerous slope to get ourselves on. Because- no, I agree. Because then people will start thinking, well, if you can bring it back, then what's the harm in us shooting them all willy-nilly now? So, yeah, I just wanted to get on my soapbox for a second and say, whilst it's very interesting, I'm still not sure where I stand on it. <laughs> on the subject, that is not on the book. <laughs> oh. ah, let's move on to our actual question for this week as well. Drew, what have we got? Uh, so the question that we have, uh, there's one we've, we've dug up. Um, so apologies, uh, Dan, uh, who sent in this question. It was quite a while ago, I think. We just haven't got around to it till today. So it's why haven't snakes evolved fur to live in colder places? Dan then also adds that he reckons actually that's a stupid question, which isn't. There's no stupid questions apart from, can I touch this blue ring dog's bus? <laughs> yeah. So when it comes to furry snakes, um, the reason why snakes generally don't have fur uh, is because, well, their their fur is in the form of scales. Um, so feathers and fur are both modified, highly modified scales um, that you would then end up with them being, you know, uh, quite different. But snakes do 
have ways of coping with the cold. Things like adders, for instance, they live in very northern uh, latitudes and they can live in areas where it gets, well, freezing cold during the winter, but they become inactive. And it's the same with all other uh, cold-blooded reptiles. So it would take quite a bit of quite a bit of an evolutionary jump for these guys to do things like that. So this is the simple answer is basically their biology has not really allowed them to do that. But you may have seen, uh, as we were in fact discussing this off mic, a furry snake that turned up in Thailand, um, which had everyone looking on the internet, this uh, snake swimming around in a, in a pool of water with, it basically looks like it's completely covered in a massive, well, green fur. The thought is though, that this particular snake, because if you type in furry snake, it's pretty much the main thing that comes up um, amongst other things. Um, is this... Uh... Intrigued as to, uh, amongst other things there, Gareth. Yeah. I'm intrigued to, uh, as amongst other things, what else, what else comes up when you type furry snake into Google? Um, <laughs> well. <laughs> well. It was, uh, <laughs> well. We will leave that for the... Um... The director's cut version of this podcast when it comes out. Uh, so the thought is that this is a either a puff-faced water snake or masked water snake, uh, which are found in Thailand, which is where the the video of this furry snake comes from. It's thought that the snake is basically covered in well algae. It's been living in and around a pool of water, and you know it's got some algae stuck on it, and it's, uh, it seems to have clung to it. Or, and the sad thing is, there's probably more, more along this line of inquiry, is some people think that it may have been stuck on there by people trying to get five minutes of fame on the internet, which, let's face it, is probably just as likely because we don't tend to see snakes like this most of the time because they, they don't sit there for long enough for stuff like this to grow on them. Uh-huh. We see things like uh, turtles, and terrapins getting stuff like this on them, but not generally snakes. So, yeah, uh, it's it's hard to tell um, the exact reasoning for it, but um, that's what seems to come up when you are looking at that. So, yeah, the, the basic reason is snakes have just not evolved to do that. Just like spiders have never evolved the ability to fly and marine mammals have not developed gills, which would be more efficient for both of those animals to be able to do what they do. They just haven't because that's how biology works, really. It's uh, you do what you can with what you can get and you make mm-hmm. adaptions as best as you can. But most of the time, it's not as over the top. Yeah. Yeah. You can get overkill. Can't yep. you? Mm. Like, you know, lions don't need venom. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a bit overkill. <laughs> a venomous lion. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, if you too, dear listener, uh, want to send us your questions about furry reptiles um, you can do by sending us your questions uh, to our email address, which is the nat history covered at gmail.com. Um, we're also on Twitter and on Facebook and our Twitter handle is at NH cupboard. Uh, and remember, of course, we are on TikTok as well, where we've been putting loads of videos up uh, of different bits and pieces and all sorts of stuff like that. And remember to leave us a review Uh, like subscribe all that sort of stuff on whatever podcasting service you're listening to us on Uh, and in fact Aaron did you want to did you want to say about what you discovered the other day yeah so I just typed in I typed in our um, podcast into Google to see I was actually looking for where we could find it like what what services we are actually well on on all good podcasting services all good podcasting yeah but um, yeah up came a website it's called feeds feed spot and the article was 15 best natural history podcasts and i thought well i've typed our name in let's let's have a look <laughs> um and we are actually number one on their list which is fantastic which is really cool really really it's, cool it's all down to you lot the listeners for uh <laughs> well putting up i, mean, I think us. we can take some credit well, I mean, yes, I suppose we, we've done but something. Thank you for listening. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it doesn't seem right, us being in you know number one spot for things no, like who, that. Who was judging this, sorry? I don't know. Um, so, so this um, 
Was it you, Aaron? Did the, you the write web? It? Yeah, I wrote it. Oh. All fifteen places are uh, natural history cupboard podcast. No, oh. it, it's it's on Feedspot, which it's kind of like a blog. I think the article is fifteen best natural history podcasts, and the kind of blurb at the top of the page says the best podcasts about natural history from thousands of podcasts on the web, ranked by traffic, social media followers, domain authority, and freshness. So yeah, that that's pretty cool because it's with it being ranked by or traffic and social media followers is that's got to be quite a thing because I imagine that we're up against. I know natural history museums often have their own podcasts and stuff. What a sorry set of affairs cool. if we've beaten some natural history <laughs> museums. Indeed. <laughs> the, oh, the end of the day, this is really cool. It's it's uh, you guys, the listeners that have. Uh, boosted us when it comes to this and made our egos not fit through the door now so yeah no we are now trapped in the cupboard yeah <laughs> we're stuck <Okay. laughs> so that just leaves me to say uh, a big thank you to my two co-hosts we are number one let's not forget that we are number one. so a big thank you to you drew singing away there Welcome. That, that guy passed away. It's very sad. Mm. You, you um, don't know where it's from, do you? No, I have no idea. <laughs> okay, all right. Never mind. It's from Lazy Town, <laughs> which is a, uh, a, a kids' TV program. Anyway. Yeah, I never watched that. Yeah. <laughs> and a big thank you to you, Aaron. If it's a big thank you and you're that grateful, perhaps you should de-extinct David Prowse for me so I can get a signed Darth Vader photo. Wow. I'll get on that. I mean... <laughs> I'll see what I can do. I, I don't don't like your chances. Read that book for some tips. Yeah. <laughs> and a big thank you uh, to you at home for listening. So and for, uh, for making us number one. Yeah. On this one. on this uh, on this website. So we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. And to play us out, Drew. <laughs> You know, we're something of a podcast ourselves. <laughs> a top-ranking podcast ourselves. Somewhat, yeah.